This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, welcoming you to the July 2021 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. This month in the theaters of Fairfield County coming out of COVID, we meet some of the men and women who have been leading these theaters through this crisis, speaking about how their theaters have managed to survive this year, when most were often close to the edge of extinction, how they are now positioned and what their plans are for this fall and winter and for spring 2022. We're lucky to have gathered leaders from a very wide range of theaters in our region, from Greenwich across to Bridgeport, the large and the small, the long established and the fledgling. So let's get down to it and welcome our guests. First, uh, Michael Barker. Michael is managing director of the Westport Country Playhouse. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, David. Uh, Hugh Hallinan. <laughs> executive director and producer of the Downtown Cabaret Theatre in Bridgeport. Welcome, Hugh. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Stephanie Hazard, founder and co-artistic director with Andrea Lynn Green of the Greenwich Theatre Company. Welcome, Stephanie and Andrea. Thanks, David. Thanks for having us. Kristen Hoffman, producing artistic director of the New Paradigm Theatre. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks. Nice to be here. And Lua Sohn, Executive Director and Producing Artistic Director of Curtain Call in Stamford. Welcome, Lou. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Yes. Well, welcome, everyone. And thank you very much for being with, here with us today. Um, so first, let's uh, have you all very briefly introduce yourselves. Uh, I've Let's just start off with you uh, each telling us when your theatre was founded and when your, you yourself started working there and in what capacity. Um, so let's start this round by going geographically from Greenwich in the southwest to Bridgeport in the northeast of our region. So Stephanie and Andrea from Greenwich, uh, when was the Greenwich Theatre Company founded? So um, it was from, well, it's an intro. I want to answer the question two ways. Yes. I believe it was founded from the first conversation, but it, we might technically want to say that it was founded based on the first production date. But uh, Kyle Silver, who is the executive director um, of the Greenwich Theatre Company, <clears throat> has also been the executive director of the Arch Street Teen Center in Greenwich for 23 plus years. And so it was originally to have a theater company. Uh, it was his brainchild. And the first, um, and, and so a mutual friend who knew that I was an actress and a director introduced the two of us. So um, we had a conversation and that was specifically June, 2019. 2019, so- Yeah, 2019. You were yeah. the fledgling in the group. Yes, 
Well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to not refer to myself as fledgling, just founding. So okay. uh, in any event, so I did call after that initial conversation, I reached out to my friend and colleague, Andrea Lynn Green. We are both members of the Theater Artists Workshop and have been um, for a long time and worked together. And um, so we, we literally sat at a picnic table in the park in Greenwich and um, scribbled down some ideas as to what our vision would be for this theater company. And our first production we launched with God of Carnage and that was September, 2019. Okay. All right. Well, that's uh, great to hear. Um, next uh, would be Stanford and Lou, Lou Asun. The, uh, the theater complex at Sterling Farms uh, is all municipal owned. It's all, all property owned by the city of Stanford. So theater operations started in 1972. Uh, so the question is coming up on its 50th anniversary. We're still kind of young, but, you know, not uh, in terms of Westport. Uh, Curtain Call uh, has had a management agreement to operate the facility since 1992. And I'm starting my 21st season. Ah. That's uh, very auspicious, uh, Lou. <laughs> <Congratulations>. <laughs> um, so also in Stanford, Kristen. Now, Kristen, you actually work across the region, but I think your office is in Stanford. Is that our offices are in Stanford, and we produce in Fairfield? Yeah, we are a nonprofit founded in 2012. And we did um, holiday shows and various events. And then in 2016, we started doing main stage shows um, as well, started with Oliver. And uh, we uh, worked out through the Fairfield Theater Company and then uh, through Black Rock Church's wonderful uh, facility. Um, and then we started collaborating with the Norwalk Symphony a couple of years ago. And that added to our season uh, to produce um, shows uh, with their symphony as well. And I'm, I'm the founder, so I've been with it since the beginning. Great. Um, so next would be Westport, Michael. Yeah. So we're uh, we're we're uh, the elderly statesmen, the the older statesmen of the bunch. Uh, we just celebrated our 90th birthday on June 29th, uh, founded in 1931. I am somewhat younger than the theater. Um, I'm coming up on five years in Westport uh, uh, in September, um, and I just I, I'm clocking here. I'm making little notes that just the connective tissues between our theaters are so strong. I'm sitting here thinking new paradigm. We have a trustee in your upcoming show, um, theater artist workshop. I mean, we, all, all of those people are people that are around are you know, around the playhouse all the time. I mean, it's just sort of incredible to be in this room. So I want to thank you again for having me here. Absolutely. Um, and let's see, Bridgeport, uh, Hugh. That's, Downtown Cabaret Theater, founded May 1975, and uh, that was founded by Claude McNeil. It was uh, part of a offshoot of a cabaret that was formed at Sacred Heart University when Sacred Heart's address was in Bridgeport. I don't know how it ended up in Fairfield, but there you go. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and we moved to Golden Hill Street, or they moved the operation to Golden Hill Street uh, 75, and that's when it was formally incorporated. I got to Bridgeport in 1980. Uh, it was a family effort. My father ran the theater up until 1996. Um, I ran all the technical aspects up to that point and then moved on over to the uh, producing side. So we have been providing 
nonstop entertainment year round since 1980. Terrific. Right. Up until last year, of course. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so now let's thank you all. So let's spend a little more time with each theatre. Perhaps this time we can go in order of when the theatre was created. Um, give us a little bit of the flavour of the place. Um, how and why it was created, whether it's changed over the years, uh, something about the makeup of your board and audiences, what kind of plays, performances are you drawn towards? Um, so I think, Michael, you win the game of earliest founding date. <laughs> so, so I get to start. Yeah. So uh, we have changed substantially over 90 years, but the, the through line is that the Playhouse was founded as a professional organization which is to say people who work at the Playhouse mostly make their uh, careers and livings doing the work of creating theater uh, for audiences, not just in our community, many of them, many of them around the country, New York, et cetera. Um, it was founded by Lawrence Langner and the Theater Guild um, with his wife, Armina Marshall. Um, and they set this uh, barn up, which they used to make um, uh, hatter leathers to make hats. Uh, was what it was before it became a theater. It was redesigned by Throckmorton, who did theaters all over the country. Um, and that was an out-of-town tryout house for stuff that was primarily bound for New York. It would be, it was essentially in the middle of a field, in the middle of nowhere, and they could just try weird stuff out. And many of the plays are really, really weird. We have not uh, gotten out of the business of doing weird plays sometimes. We, we, do, we, we consider ourselves a mission-based organization first and under Mark Lamos's artistic leadership. Um, what we do is uh, we try to strike that best balance. I always talk about our seasons being kind of like a meal that you don't want a plate of cookies just for your meal, at least not every day. Um, <laughs> probably want some meat, you want some vegetables, you know, some stuff that could, that's good for you uh, where you might learn something, some stuff that where you can turn off your brain and forget the pandemic. Um, so that's the kind of, we've, we've evolved really into the, what is more or less the standard regional theater model. Um, and we do a lot of work with our peers in the state, um, Long Wharf, Hartford, stage a good speed that 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 group we spend a lot of time uh, with as, as well as the presenting houses great um i think you you're you're, you're next you were what 1976 yeah 75 well fight over that year yeah um so at the beginning as i mentioned the cabaret was formed uh, as a cabaret style uh venue when we got in in 1980, the venue had been dark for about six months. Um, I was transplanted with my parents from Ireland. And one of the shows that always uh, bailed you out if you were in any kind of a situation was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, which we produced, uh, which was the first uh, production in North America at the time before it went to Broadway. So we, we stuck huh? that feather in our cap. Uh, Community-based theater, for sure. And after that, we, we strayed away from the cabaret-style shows of decades, uh, selecting decades of music, and started producing book musicals. Uh, by 1983, we had our first three wireless um, lavalier systems that felt pretty advanced. Then we became, uh, we took on equity towards the end of the 80s uh, on a SBT contract. We 
10 years later, we were on a Lord D uh, contract playing with the big boys, um, which was the start of our sort of downfall. We did it very successfully. Uh, Connecticut Critics ranked us up there with Westport Country Playhouse, Good Speed, Hartford State. But given the fact we could only do four shows a week and uh, the challenges that Bridgeport still have getting a full audience in, we ended up spending more than we were bringing in, which took us to a crash around 2006, which is when we, um, I was in control at that point. I decided to uh, rein things back in, shut down the main stage, maintain our stalwart children's theater program. Uh, we ushered in a few shows that we wrote, a Beatles review, a Johnny Cash review. And then slowly, uh, once people had forgotten the grade of steak we were serving as a metaphor on the main stage, we reintroduced main stage theater only for me to discover that the audience were still thrilled with what was going on and that half of the uh, experience is in the the theater where they bring their own food and drink instead of the table. They're having a grand old time before the curtain even goes up. And that is our story, sort of a rags to riches back to rags. And that is the formula that works. And that's the one I'm sticking with. Mm -hmm. Wow. Interesting story here. You've really, uh, you've seen it all. <clears throat> um, that's great. Um, Lou, I know you've got two dates, so, but um, 1992 <laughs> was when you really um, started operating um, in the way that you, you, you are now, right? Sure. For, uh, for, yes, for Curtain Call. Curtain Call was actually founded in 1990. Theater's been yeah, functioning uh, since 1972. Uh, as I mentioned, it's all city-owned property. The city of Stanford purchased the property in 1969, uh, with the express intentions uh, for cultural and recreational activities. So uh, Stanford had had a community-based theater organization that was nomadic for a number of years, you know, from the 50s and early 60s, doing shows in different school venues, et cetera. Um, Curtain Call was founded by uh, two friends, Lynn Colacella and Lori Gusta, started out doing improv classes. Um, and they were downtown Stanford for a while, and their first, quote, venue was actually the basement of the state theater here in Stanford, where it's a 45 seat space. And it is actually because it was an old theater, those were the dressing rooms for the, for the theater. So they, they call that space, the dressing room theater. So when curtain call uh, became the managing agents for the property, the girls took the name, the dressing room theater up to Sterling farms. And, you know, a lot of people think because we used that building for dressing rooms for so many years, that's why it's called the dressing room theater. Uh, but it's actually because the name came with the girls. Uh, wow. We've got two great theaters. Uh, we're, we're very fortunate. The city of Stanford uh, leaders from the early days through today um, have, have saw fit to support the arts. Uh, we did a $1.2 million addition and renovation of the Queskin Theater in 2010, another million dollar uh, addition and renovation to the Dressing Room Theater in uh, 2016. So we're, you know, we're very fortunate. We've, you know, we like everybody else, we do a little bit. Uh, I, I like Michael's uh, food analogy because we're definitely of that ilk. I try to produce at least one original play or musical each season, uh, giving new authors a, a chance to have their voices heard, which I think is really exciting. Uh, the season that we have coming up actually has two original plays. 
uh, you know, we've been very busy. Uh, our normal year audience is about 30,000 plus. We've been operating at 90 to 95 percent capacity for the last eight years, uh, which is really amazing and, and, and wonderful. The, uh, the Queskin Theater, uh, like Westport, was a barn, uh, originally a cow barn. The entire property, you know, was all was for Guernsey cows. So we had the traditional, I've got a barn, let's put on a show. Uh, but we definitely have uh, a real mix of things, uh, a lot of educational programming for young and old year-round. But we do, you know, we are producing uh, 12 months a year with 12 to 14 full-scale productions every year and a dozen or more one-nighters, you know, concerts, comedy nights, murder mysteries, things like that. Uh, but it's, we're, we're, uh, we're alive and kicking. And, uh, you know, like everybody else here, we've survived this mess and uh, we're not going anywhere. Right. Thank you, Lou. Um, and Kristen. Um, I never really intended to found a, a theater company. <laughs> um, I'm a, a Broadway veteran. And um, actually, at, uh, when I was Miss Ohio and a runner up to Miss America and at Miss America, my platform issue was how do you support no, more nonprofits just in general? You know, how do you get more people to volunteer their time? But after performing at tons of different regional theaters around the country and seeing a lot of them sort of go under or not thrive or, and I'm, you know, I'm a teacher. I teach at a couple of universities and privately. Um, it started to occur to me that there might be a way to start a company with a, a, a little different um, uh, mission statement. Ours is to promote social responsibility and foster creative problem solvers leaders, global citizens through theater arts, education and productions. So we're that kind of combination. I mean, so much of what we do is because we focus on youth. Obviously, I mean, I'm a teacher at heart and um, we have an adult board of directors, but a youth board of directors too. And we've had that since the very beginning. And we, it's not a club. It literally teaches the kids how to be on a board of directors and how to make some policy decisions and fundraising and just to cooperate and learn from each other. We're a real hybrid of, are we a community theater? Are we, we use um, uh, guest artist contracts, equity guest artists, I'm equity. Um, and then we have local youth who are some of the Gold Coast kids, but also we have Bridgeport kids on scholarship. Uh, we have special needs kids. We have kids who've been on stage and go into New York and do auditions, but we also have kids who've never been on stage. And I think part of that reason, uh, you know, again, that hybrid, we hire professionals for all the directors and all the tech people um, and some of our stars. And then we have an, another layer of kind of up and coming stars, young people, like who will play our, our Wren or Willard or Rusty and Footloose this summer. And then we have local adults who are, went into something else that they could make money doing and they just want to be on stage. And then we have that whole group of youth so that it's the whole trickle down. Let's let's set up this atmosphere of professionalism and trickle down and teach these kids who may not want to be Broadway stars, but they may want to be really great teachers or doctors or whatever they want to be in their lives, what they can learn from the arts. We're also really known for partnering a lot. We partner with social justice nonprofits that reflect the themes of our shows. We did Bye Bye Birdie. Of course, we partnered with the American Veterans. And we taught our youth about what that organization does. They volunteered there. We had some veterans on stage during the Shriner scene. Instead, it was 
a meeting of the veterans. We had a 91 year old man who was at the Battle of the Bulge, you know, and they uh, they got a standing ovation when that group came out, which was cool. This year for Footloose, we're partnering with Kids Helping Kids because it's all about kids finding agency. And then we partner with other arts nonprofits. Um, little ways, um, like Lou let us use um, some set pieces last year um, at Curtain Call. We love him. Um, and um, Norwalk Symphony, we love partnering with them to do shows and we help create after school at the Climb some years ago. Um, we love working at FTC as well as BlackRock and Emanuel Church allows us to rehearse there. We founded with the idea that we would be like the New York theaters who don't own a space, but who will rent. So we've kept that up. And then we just do interesting versions of shows that, you know, edgy, we're, we're known as sort of edgy. And then we always emphasize that social justice element. And we've got a couple kids, our youth board kids on the CARI, the equity and diversity calls um, that the Cultural Alliance has set up. Some of our youth board members attend that as well as our board. That's great. That's quite, sounds quite a unique uh, profile uh, and signature, Kristen. Congratulations on, on creating that. And um, I guess the new kid on the block, uh, Stephanie and Andrea, tell us about uh, a little bit more about uh, the Greenwich Theatre Company. I'll start us off and then Stephanie, you can help help me out. Um, so uh, when we first started founding, well, as Stephanie said earlier, we are still in the founding phase when all of this happened. Um, and we, we were able to establish our mission, which is to inspire empathy by telling the stories of our shared humanity. So with that mission, we set out to create what an ideal season would be. And I really, I really like what Michael said as well about balance and um, the the meal of the season. And we're, I think that's sort of what we are aiming to do as well. Um, and um, Stephanie, do you want to jump in? You're muted, by the way. <laughs> um. So I, I would just simply add that that you know our growth, um, as Andrea mentioned, is is tied to in our mission and uh, providing space for um, you know uh, everything tying back to empathy and everything tying back to um, shared experience. We love you know we have a very unique space so that also um actually factors into um when we envision our our um season because it's uh we're housed at the arch street teen center and um it has these incredible incredibly high vaulted you know ceiling it was actually um for ships at a shipyard so they would roll the ship in so this space is very, it's not that it's modern, it's just very, very unique. So it allows, so, you know, the term reimagine, we all have heard so much that this, 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 this sort of pandemic year, if you will, but it constantly asks us or invites us to reimagine what we would do. So we have that in our equation, if that makes any sense. So, you know, when the, the first, uh, our first production was God of Carnage, and we had this remarkable, you know, thought that we would put the living room right on, you know, the, the floor with the audience members, instead of it being as it was in Broadway, you know, staged in the proscenium. 
construct, right? So we had, I mean, if any of you have seen the play, there's a scene where somebody actually, one of the characters gets sick. We had people because of how we staged it and the space itself and the intimacy where everybody was basically in the living room, in the set, if you will. We had some audience members leave to, because they felt sick. So, so um, wh- why I'm telling that anecdote is that the space itself, as I said, sort of challenges us and invites us to think of things quite differently. We also, um, one of our artistic, one of our founding members, Jack Rushton, is a playwright. And the second uh, production we had was called Seven Easy Pieces. And so we literally had seven characters playing 14 roles, right, in these seven short plays. And it had been developed up at the Theater Artist Workshop and, and brought in. So we, too, have this. We want to strike the balance of, of supporting the new and nascent playwrights, uh, playwriters or nascent actors and inviting the local community in as well. We had an open casting call. We had so many people show up from Greenwich and from New York. Um, you know, we're quite, we're, we're right by the train. And so, we, you know, the proximity to New York certainly helps on lots of different levels. Um, but so we just, we really, um, you know, again, have have an eye toward providing wonderful entertainment, known shows, but we also want to be provocative and um, certainly um, provide, um, you know, content and an experience that people, um, how can I say, have never had before. So um, it's yeah. the balance of both. Terrific. Yeah. Um, and I'm looking forward to hearing about your about your future seasons too. Um, um, very interesting too. I could uh, see a whole other program on the uh, impact of of the spaces that you you were all in or were given or were incubated by. Sort of very interesting there. If you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County and our July 2021 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN. 89.5 FM. Today, our subject is the theaters of Fairfield County coming out of COVID. Our guests are Michael Barker, Managing Director of the Westport Country Playhouse, Hugh Hallinan, Executive Director and Producer of Downtown Cabaret Theater in Bridgeport, Stephanie Hazard, Founder and Co-Artistic Director, together with Andrea Lynn Green of the Greenwich Theater Company, Kristen Huffman, Producing Artistic Director of the New Paradigm Theatre, and Lou Ersone, Executive Director and Producing Artistic Director of Curtain Call in Stamford. So I'd like to take us back in time now um, to March 2020, seems perhaps a lifetime to you all, and um, just a two part, uh, first part, just very quick, like 30 seconds, um, do you remember anything about how you felt when you heard or suspected that something really bad was on its way? Um, what was your first response? Kristen? Well, we were already almost all cast and ready for Footloose because, you know, you yeah. begin, begin your production work really early. And then we thought, uh, 
we've already paid for the rights, but we haven't paid for everything else yet. So should we suspend right now and just put it over to next year? We had a lot of online board meetings um, and kind of testing the waters and uh, it, that became the safest thing to do, you know, and, and we just took the safest choice and said, we'll move it. We can hover. We'll move it ahead to next year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Michael. I felt like those audience members that got a carnage uh, right? I mean, but in a bad way. I mean, yeah. that's clearly the good way that you've made someone feel something, but this was, I mean, the, the bottom dropped out and it dropped out quickly. Mm -hmm. um, we were we were literally the day before, we had a stage manager in, in New York for a rehearsal of Next to Normal. It was the day before first rehearsal when the actors would arrive. Mm -hmm. And so the production manager and I got on the phone with every single artist and told them what we thought was happening. And then we had that evening not an online, but a con this is like it feels like a hundred years ago, a conference call with the board of trustees, right. which I can't imagine doing now that Zoom yeah. has become the standard. So yeah. um, small improvements, but yeah, it was, how about, it how, was about, how about you, Hugh? You remember that moment? Yeah, you know, being in theater all my life and I saw the train coming at us. Oh. Yeah. When I, you know, when I heard that Broadway shut down, the West End had shut down. I thought, what are we even doing still standing at this minute? We're about to get completely wiped out. Uh, we were at dress rehearsal for the, uh, the bodyguard at that point. And I just said to everybody, you know, brace yourselves. We are sitting ducks and there is nothing we can do yeah. um, to stop what's about to hit us. And uh, yeah, it didn't, it didn't disappoint. <laughs> How about you, Lou? Uh, we were in production with Beyond Therapy at that point and had our full season lined up all the way through uh, into September. You know, we had Nonsense on deck. We had Crossing Delancey on deck, Kinky Boots. Our, we would have done uh, Romeo and Juliet last summer at our summer youth theater production of Big. Everything was paid for. All the plans, you know, the Nonsense set was completed and sat there for 15 months getting dusty. <laughs> you know, but the reality was like you said, we had no choice. And hearing once Broadway made the decision, there was no way in heck that we were going to survive. And then we had to figure out how to survive. Right. But we did. The good yeah. news. Oh, yeah. Um, and Stephanie and Andrea in Greenwich, uh, do you remember that moment? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll take this one. Um, I actually, I was up in the attic of the Booth Theater in New York Huh. And I'm an actor too. And I was doing yeah. uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I was <laughs> talking with Kyle and Stephanie at the same time, you know, waiting for like doing that job. And I was backstage and I had to send out the cancellation notice on my, on my laptop that I brought. And it was terrifying. Not only that, but, you know, being, in the thick of it in that moment, personally, it was intense. And of course we all know what happened. Um, and uh, so that was my experience of it. Yes, very, very shocking. Yeah. And I, I would just quickly add that the cancellation notice that Thank Andrea was, was sending was we, the, Friday, March 13th, we were opening Kimberly Wilson's one woman show, A Journey. The next day, the, yeah. that that very next day, and 
as a segue to what, or it's not my show, it's, it's yours, David, but for us, our very first show that we will be opening with on September 24th is Kimberly Wilson's One Woman Show a Journey. So we so so very much like the other theaters, this is what we're going to be reopening with. But it was, you know, the feeling literally was I was sick to my stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Stephanie, uh, I'm going to jump in. David, I'm sorry. I don't have my little hand. Stephanie, thanks for reminding me. March 13 is my birthday, and that's the day we shut uh, down. And yes. <laughs> I was actually, uh, as an actor as well, in rehearsal for a little shop up at UConn. And at that point, the, the university, we were going to be going on a spring break, and the university said, well, we're going to take a two-week extended spring break, and then we're going to come back. Yeah. And we all know what happened. <laughs> but, but thanks for the birthday reminder. Yeah, that was a, it was a fun day. <laughs> yeah. Oh! I remember that. Um, okay, just moving beyond that, like, first reaction, first response. Um, as it started to sink in, um, and you started to consult with colleagues, you know, around the region, around the cr- country. Um, what what were you doing in terms of planning for the future? Did uh, did you just cancel everything? Did you think about trying, you know, after a month or so? Did you think about trying what you might be able to do remotely using video and the internet? Um, what 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 was an and emerging. I mean, did you just close down, or did you were you thinking about ways that you could somehow have some kind of presence uh, during that summer, Kristen? We again, our youth are so social media savvy. So we had always had a lot of social media going on. But our chairman of our board, Mark Holleran, is Holleran Media Productions, and before we even had real productions, those his videos that he made for us were our productions, were the things that we showed. So we just continued to do that. And we did like three outdoor events, um, not immediately, but like in the fall. And we did, because that's what you could do. That's what the CDC said that you could do. And then we did our holiday show was completely online. Um, and we just kept doing a lot of video, Instagram. You know, I got a little um, freshman who's the head of our marketing committee for um, the youth board and they would just pop stuff out all the time. So I'm trusting that our presence stayed out there and we kept volunteering and doing things that we could, but you know, they couldn't go anywhere. So that's where our efforts went. Certainly the, the advantage of having a kind of a much younger crew um, and having this existing social media presence that was, that was really lucky. Um, so you mentioned summer and I know um, just with conversations with Lou, um, Lou, you uh, have a tradition of doing summer outside productions. And uh, I know that you were figuring out the, with the rules and regulations from the state about what you could and couldn't do about outside gatherings and whether it would make sense for you to hold outside performances. Uh, could you t- talk a little bit about what was going on there with you uh, sort of thinking about the summer? Sure. I mean, we, you know, we, we were blessed, you know, I was talking to colleagues all across the country uh, about what they were doing and people were trying to turn a loading dock into a performing space, a parking lot into a performing space. And we were fortunate because we've done our Shakespeare on the green presentation for 18 years. We have the stage, we have the lighting rig, sound rig, everything is ready to roll. So 
you know, even though we knew we had to have reduced capacities uh, based on the standards, we still thought it was worth going forward. And we created what I what I call our Shakespearean cabaret. Since we couldn't get more than 10 people together to rehearse a full show, we did scenes and monologues from the past, from the previous 16 years of Shakespeare productions and added in musical numbers from Shakespeare inspired musicals, you know, like, you know, Kiss Me Kate and West Side yeah. Story, et cetera. <laughs> so we did that and we kept, you know, the actors were eight feet apart when they were, when they were, when there was more than one person on stage, the crew walked across the stage, everybody entered stage, right? Went to the stage, exited stage left. So the crew could follow the same path, wipe the microphones down in between each scene or song. Uh, but we did that for two weekends where we normally would do our full Shakespeare production and, you know, quote, sold out. Uh, with you know, the 75 people that we could have when you could only be 15 feet apart. Uh, but because people were excited and came, we decided to continue um, every other weekend with just basically a down and dirty cabaret performance. And we did that right through the first weekend of November. So we did 23 nights of entertainment from the middle of July until November 8th. And, you know, we, we were blessed we, we ha- that we had the facility and ability to do that. And as the restrictions lifted a little bit, we got up to 150 people outside. So that was really, uh, it was huge for us. Um, did you make any money? Like ever- did you make Yeah, any- we did. Absolutely. Yeah. We did make money. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we are, you know, we paid the musicians as always. And, you know, we had, uh, you know, my, my resident uh, technical director is also our sound engineer. So, um, you know, I've got to say, as far as help, I took advantage of using the Labor Department's shared work program, and I'm not going to go into the details of it, but it was a godsend. And, and early on, I was telling everybody, do it. I was able to keep all but one of my 10 year-round staff members employed and with health insurance during this entire period, really because of the Labor Department's shared work program. It was a godsend, and we were able to stay whole. And um, so I, I've, I've given a shout out the labor department a million times and and they did yeoman's work and it was a real godsend for us yeah i mean i wanted to actually ask about um you know uh the support that you all felt i mean uh, many would say that theater is a family uh and to really work everyone obviously has to pull together it's not just you you have your production staff the performers your audiences your board your financial supporters and as nonprofits, funders, local, state, and national government. Um, where did you find the most help? Or what, what were you most surprised about as you were you know, trying to figure out how you could keep uh, everything from falling absolutely uh, apart? Michael? Uh, well, I mean, as long as we're giving shout outs to government entities that never get shout outs, and I agree the Department of Labor did really great work in this period. I want to give a shout out to the Department of Economic and Community Development and Governor Lamont, because this was a moment, and I hope it's not the end of a moment, but this was a moment where the leadership in Hartford really got together from the beginning, from June. We were having ongoing meetings, and Lou was in a bunch of them. I mean, it's where we were talking about this is existential stuff, and they heard it. Now, when they originally heard it, they said, we hear it, and there's no money for that. But as soon as there's money for that, we'll have this conversation. And then when the federal government did the right thing and started to put money into the pipeline to get the economy moving again, there was a recognition 
that our contribution to that economy, not just because of our missions, but also because of our missions, uh, was important enough to have a place at that table. And um, that was for, for, I mean, I must have hundreds of hours spent um, in those rooms and out of those rooms. And, uh, it was, it, and it did end up in some granting opportunities at the end of the year. And my, my hope and intention, as we look at the NEA having record funding and all of this other stuff that's coming down the pike in the federal government, is that this is the beginning of the conversation and not the end. This doesn't wait on the next disaster to say that the arts are important enough to be funded in a country which the, uh, the primary export is culture, right. right? And we treat this, you know, we treat this sector like a second-class citizen and really until the disaster hits. So um, that was, that was, that's the reason, that's the reason the Playhouse is still exists in the way it exists now is because that came to the table. And it's building new relationships, relationships with, yeah. with new parts of um, the, the society that, you've, that weren't really there before. Kristen, mm -hmm. do you have something to... Uh, just in terms of support? I bet Hugh yeah. does. Hugh's got some good stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Kristen. Uh, just to touch back on what went through my head when we had to shut down was the $250,000 in advanced sales and how I'm going to deal with that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. um, that kept me up for the first couple of nights. Uh, but in terms of what are we going to do? I, I said, guys, do not fool yourself. We're dark for at least a year. We need to save that energy up for when it comes time to reboot. Um, hats off to Lou for managing what he did. I, I kind of wasn't in that headspace. Uh, but we got through that. A lot of the patrons turned their tickets in for donations. Other people, <laughs> others took credits. Really just $30,000 asked for a refund. But, uh, you know, piggybacking on what Michael said, the state now being aware and made aware, we're sort of have a place at the table now when these conversations happen financially. Instead of these little uh, donations or grants that really are just such a yeah. drop in the bucket yeah. for what we need and everybody's sacrificing what they need to do. And if we really showed the, the public what the true price of that ticket needed to be to bring the show, well, they probably wouldn't <laughs> be able to afford it. Um, so for all those things, I'm grateful. Uh, there was a moment there, having been in show business all my life, I thought, what? And I spent a lot of time thinking, what could I possibly do at this point in time of my career, um, being that I'm getting mail from AARP? <laughs> but what could I do? You know, I'm sitting here using buying how to be a used car salesman. But anyway, it didn't come to that. And I'm grateful, obviously, for the SVOG. We did very well on that. Um, um, I, you, I, just for our, for our listeners, um, and I know as you are the first one in our region to receive one, the chef's shuttered venue, um, own, uh, what is it? Operators <laughs> Grant. Operators Grant. Could you just uh, say a little bit word, of, word about that, that we can devote a, an entire program to the Small Business Administration and, and the, the whole history of that. But sure. could you just give us a thumbnail for, for the audience? Yeah. Uh, you know, what happened was that um, we a huge educational purpose. I, uh, uh, when we did the press conference with Senator Blumenthal, I said, there are two things I have not done in theater. I've cleaned the bathrooms. I've plowed the 
the parking lot, but I haven't built costumes and grant writing is not my strong point. Well, I got over the grant writing prospect um, and I just thought, what are the chances we can um, actually make this happen? So the fact is it does pay off. We were able to all be a, a bumpy start and it took a long time. Um, I was grateful to be for the theater to be one of the first ones to be notified, but that was such a significant amount of money. It just was like, okay, they're serious. This, this is going to mean a lot. Uh, I've dragged the theater out of many downturns by just taking on four morals and the four I already have. <laughs> this, this way we can come out of it kind of whole and in a humane uh, fashion. So we received $541,000, which represented 45% of our uh, lost revenues from the previous year. So uh, hats off to the um, SBA. You know, they jumped into that. They got a lot of, uh, they got a lot of mud on their face, but you know, th this was a first time. There was no roadmap there and uh, very grateful for that. Right. Any other comments about uh, uh, routes of support? Any surprises in terms of uh, the support that you were getting, anything about the, your audiences? Um. You know, I'll jump back in, as Michael said, the Department of Economic Development and Liz Shapiro, specifically at the, at the Arts Division, her team uh, were great. I spoke, you know, spoke with our, our state and federal representatives who all, you know, again, at, after the first shock of what was going on, really pretty much all of our legislative leaders uh, across the aisle realized the importance of the arts community. Um, and, you know, colleagues, you know, Hugh and I have known each other for almost 40 years and spoke more in the last year uh, than we had in the previous. And, you know, Kevin Connors at MTC and I uh, that spoke pretty much daily. And, you know, we were fortunate. I, I was fortunate as, as an equity you know, union performer, got to work in December on a show at MTC because Kevin was one of the uh, few union theaters that was actually allowed to open at all this year. Uh, so, you know, we all work together. We've, we've all spoken uh, uh, on a regular basis. I think it's the camaraderie of the arts uh, that helped, certainly helped me personally survive the insanity and, and keep our, kept our theater alive. So just uh, thinking about, um, if you like the re-emergence, um, vaccinations have had a lot to do with it. I think for the theater, the shuttered venues, the operators grant has has had a lot to do with it. Um, so you now all must have plans for re-emergence. Um, some of you have said that you were basically like with Greenwich, uh, bringing the play to the stage that you were, had uh, prepared for uh, when, when COVID hit. Um, when did you all feel you could see the light at the end of the tunnel? Um, when, did, when did you feel confident about now beginning to plan? January, uh, and we're producing in August. We <laughs> said we had, we go, okay, we got plan A, plan B, plan C. And you know, they were versions of, it will either be in person, totally, or it'll be outdoors, or but one way or another, we're doing this this summer. So um, <laughs> luckily, knock on wood, everything is lined up. All of our adults are vaccinated. 
it was hard because you couldn't say you can't audition for this unless you're vaccinated. I guess you could, but um, we said we suggest that and they volunteered to let us know. So that was great. And then we um, got so many people auditioning. The guy that we have playing Ren, so we did the A1 auditions and heard tons of young people and older people too. He lives in Florida. Our, our Ariel lives in Virginia. We would never have gotten this young man, the African-American amazing dancer singer in a year where Westport country playhouse could have hired him away from us. We would never, I'm joking, but he, this kid, Oh my gosh, wait, come see him. He is amazing. We would never have been able to keep him because the bigger, bigger theaters would have been able to steal away. I totally get it. I would have done it too. So that's, we're so excited. And I got a man, Rick Pender, who is not equity, but Royal Shakespeare Academy or Royal Shakespeare. Yeah whatever. He was the original, one of the original um, Jean Valjeans in the London production of Les Mis, but because he's London, he's not equity, so I can hire him. Because um, it's been very hard for companies that have those equity contracts. We have guest artist contracts, but we're not tied in. So we're like super excited. I think like, we're selling more tickets than we ever have at this point um, because people need to come and see something in person. I'm sorry. Uh, you can tell I'm excited. No, Kristen is totally, she's nailed it. Because uh, because small and scrappy, I was listening to sort of being scrappy and the things Lou the things Lou can do because he has different relationships with the unions. I said when she was saying January first, I was saying July first. Literally eight days ago, we finally got an agreement signed with our collective bargaining unit with Actors Equity that will allow us to produce in something approaching a normal way that's economical. And this has so this is literally more than a year from the shutdown and that's yeah. how long it's taken the union to come back to the table and they're not even back at the table with the with the league at least with an agreement in, in on broadway or with the off-broadway association so the larger producers are we love our partners but it's a it's a tough time with the union partners to to get through and get people employed again so i'm actually thrilled that the guest artist contracts and all of that have been reactivated in this way and that people are able to scrap their way to getting stuff on stage because our audiences are desperate Yes. Get back in a theater, not just in a theater with not with anything, with mm. a play. Yeah. They want to see a play. They want to see a story well told, mm. that's been written down somewhere by a playwright that's been developed by a company and that tells a whole story. They don't just necessarily want to see people singing and dancing, which we do have a little bit of and people should come see. Mm -hmm. um, and kids want to get back on stage too. Yeah. All the young people want to get back on stage. And, and Michael, when is that first... Um, um, "Quote unquote traditional play." Uh, when will that be hitting the? You hear, you heard it here first, folks. And uh, my PR manager is gonna um, whatever stab me with a with a knife <laughs> if, I, if I leak it here. But I'll just say it: November first, uh, we're back in the theater with doubt. Oh. We're going to be up in front of an audience with an audience in the room with the actors, not just streamed online. Um, full production directed by David Kennedy. Check it out. Uh, tickets on sale soon. Okay. Terrific. Um, um, and Stephanie and Andrea, I, I, we, we've heard that you're starting um, with um, oh, the, the name of the play. Sure. It's, it's a journey. It's a one woman show written, yes. uh, written and performed by Kimberly Wilson. Right. And that's September 24th and 25th. And then October 6th, we have, um, you know, this ties back to sort of, creating new partnerships. We have a wonderful offering in partnership with um, the Avon Film um, Theater or the Avon Theater Film Center. 
Um, we're, we're going to have a screening of the Children's Hour. This is the 60th year anniversary of that film, followed by a staged reading of two, maybe three scenes from the play featuring Sachi Parker reprising the role that her mother, Shirley MacLaine, played in the film. And I will be um, also performing opposite Sachi. So we're going to have the film version, and then, and this is all staged at Avon, followed by a staged reading from the play with the talk back with the audience to discuss parallels and differences between the play and the, and the movie version. And I'm sure people will want to ask a bunch of questions about Shirley MacLaine, so. Um, and Hugh, what, what's, um, what, have, what, have, what have you got planned now? So we're climbing out a little bit slowly. We actually have a, uh, a group uh, Broadway boot camp uh, that have a summer camp for kids and they come here to do their end of um, camp show. That's, that'll be our first out of the book, uh, out of uh, pandemic show. That's tomorrow. The only problem was I threw away all 300 chairs we had and bought new ones and they're stuck in Philadelphia because of the weather. So bring your own bottle, bring your own chair. I'm in the middle of solving that. If I look distracted, I'm <laughs> counting out chairs. Uh, but uh, the following week, we have an Eagles tribute band, Desert Highway. That's really our first time out trying all our new entry points uh, and sort of covert comfort um, uh, social distancing. We're going to find out if it's really all necessary or not. Uh, and then we have another concert in August. It's uh, Forever Motown. Then we get back into a run of Our Little Mermaid, which we closed. And we're going to reopen that. We're calling that the reboot. And then we have the Decades in Concert 70s show that uh, we wrote in-house. Uh, and so that'll low production costs and it'll give us a a time to experiment, see what people's comfort level is. Um, and then we'll kick off the full season in December. Thank you. Um, well, I was going to ask questions about, uh, you know, the most difficult thing you've been through and what you've learned, but I think we've covered some of that, especially in building new relationships with um, audiences, new relationships with gov government and funders. Um, Andrea, you had a comment? Um, I don't know if you were going to ask this, but I would say that one of the other challenges, you might have about to have been getting to this, but the, the pivot to virtual. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah, I would say that was, that was really challenging and amazing as well. Mm -hmm. Right, I think it sounds as if um, the virtual and video will be a part of um, uh, your your deck um, moving forward, um, even though many people are very relieved <laughs> to be dependent <laughs> on that um, um, move, moving forward. Um, Lou, did you have a, any comment about that uh, side of things, the video and the internet exposure? Yeah, you know, we, we were, again, we were fortunate that we, we've done a lot of original works over the years that we've filmed. So we did make those productions and our Shakespeare productions available free online. I didn't want to create uh, virtual productions. Just we're not a we're not a film company. That's not who we are. We're live theater. 
So we didn't do that. We did do a we did do a, a virtual cabaret fundraiser mid May last year just to kind of get some cash in the door, and that was terrific. Uh, but we did and we did our our classes converted to online, like pretty much everybody else. But you know, we're I, I was as scared as I was for our survival. I was probably more optimistic than most in that I created a season of two person shows that we could do very reasonably uh, on the main stage. And even with a capacity that, you know, essentially was 25%. If the audience came and they did, we were going to be fine. So, you know, I, I kept us alive throughout. We did a show, we did gin game in the fall. We did same time next year. We did an original play uh, about Mona Lisa and Leonardo da Vinci. And then we you know, nonsense. We opened in April I'm sorry, in uh, the beginning of June to you know, pretty decent capacities based again on the subs- on everything. And we're excited to be outside again this week, opening on Thursday with Romeo and Juliet and a full season of normal in September. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit of everything, but you know, we're, we're here. We're going to keep a little bit of our, our, the digital because we're also used to seeing each other on film. And we have always used so, some digital in movies in our in our actual work, our, our onstage work. We're filming two of the scenes, the Moore family scenes. We're going to film those and we're going to show those because Black Rock Church is a beautiful theater space and has this huge movie screen. So those scenes are actually going to be filmed and then we'll walk into stage because we still think people are still used to seeing some film and some TV. But we've done that before. That's mm-hmm. great. Great to hear. It's not very original, but as they say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And it's been pretty amazing to hear the energy from all of you who came so close to being out of business. So thank you all very much. I hope our audience hears this and comes out and can see some of the amazing work that you are planning this summer and fall. So thank you all. This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. You have been listening to our July 2021 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Our subject today was the theaters of Fairfield County coming out of COVID. Our guests were Michael Barker, Managing Director of the Westport Country Playhouse, Hugh Hallinan, executive director and producer of Downtown Cabaret Theatre, Bridgeport. Stephanie Hazard, founder and co-artistic director with Andrea Lynn Green of the Greenwich Theatre Company. Kristen Huffman, producing artistic director of the New Paradigm Theatre. And Lou Ursone, executive director and producing artistic director of Curtain Call in Stamford. If you missed part of the broadcast, or just want to hear it again, you can hear the show on WPKN Podcasts on SoundCloud. I'm David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. Please tune in Monday, August the 9th for the next edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture.